people can do amazing things. Walk on the moon, contain a nuclear meltdown. And what do they have in common? They're not in it alone. Creativity, talent, genius, it's all a team sport. We have seen what we thought was unseeable. It was a step in a direction that nobody had taken before. I'm Gabriella Cowperthwaite, host of Teamistry. It's an original podcast from Atlassian, all about the chemistry of teams. Check it out on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Interested in healthcare? Well, here's a programme you might not want to miss. Hosted by longtime healthcare reporter Dan Gorenstein, Tradeoffs takes a close look at the costly, complicated, and counterintuitive world of the US healthcare system and the policies that govern it. Tradeoffs digs into the weeds with experts who understand the data driving the policy trends while telling compelling stories of those impacted by those policies. In the words of the Tradeoffs team, there are no easy solutions for a troubled healthcare system, just Tradeoffs. You can find Tradeoffs wherever you listen to your podcasts. It's science, but not as you know it. The Naked Scientists. Hello, welcome to this week's Naked Scientists with me, Chris Smith, and also with the wonderful Helen Scales. Hi, Helen. Great Hello, to have you back. Hi. The old team back together again. Absolutely. Now, in the programme this week, we'll be finding out how scientists have come up with a new vaccine to fight the flu and hopefully, therefore, prevent a pandemic. We'll also be learning how humans were driving animals to extinction even 100,000 years ago and the gene for a happy marriage. Apparently how voles have shown scientists the chemical basis of monogamy. That's all on the way, Helen. Thanks, Chris. This week we'll also be taking an in-depth look at what's been described as one of the biggest and the most expensive science experiments ever, which is the Large Hadron Collider, or LHC, at CERN in Switzerland. This is the most powerful particle accelerator ever made, and it switches on this week. If everything goes to plan, then it should help scientists to recreate the conditions that occurred just after the Big Bang. And it might also help shed some light on how we all got here. That's absolutely right. And later in the programme, when we'll also be linking up with the control room at the LHC, we'll be asking them how you accelerate something to almost the speed of light, accelerate something else to almost the speed of light, and then bring the two things onto a collision course with each other. So that's all very sticky and tricky, and that's coming up. We'll also be talking to particle physicist Ben Alanak and also Tara Shears to find out about some of the experiments that they'll be running at the LHC and asking them what are the chances that we might accidentally produce a black hole that's going to swallow up the Earth. It's a scary thought which we'll be getting into very much, but even scarier is the capacity of the human brain, which is the subject of this week's Question of the Week. I would like to know how much information can my brain take before I start overwriting stuff that's already there. Is all this learning good for me? Or should I concentrate on life? So let's hope there's some space left in our heads for the answer. That's coming up later on in the programme. Thank you very much, Helen. So if you'd like to ask us anything about particle physicists, the Large Hadron Collider, or the imminent destruction of the Earth even, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist podcast, powered by UK Fast, the UK's best hosting provider, on the web at ukfast.net. This week, scientists have come up with a clever new way to produce vaccines against the flu. Now, one of the major problems with immunising people against the flu is the time it takes to produce flu vaccines. The standard technique at the moment is that you take the flu virus, you mix it with another virus called PR8, which grows very well in eggs. This produces a virus that has the ability to grow well in eggs, but also looks like what's infecting us humans. You then grow that in literally hundreds of if not millions, of eggs. And each egg produces about enough uh, vaccine material to treat three people. So you need a lot of eggs to treat a lot of people. And after a few weeks, you end up with a a sort of viral soup inside the egg, which you extract 
inactivate and then purify proteins from that which can be turned into a vaccine. Thing is, it takes a very long time to do this. It also makes an immune response which is extremely tightly focused just against that one strain of virus that you've made the vaccine against. Now, the problem with flu is that it mutates or changes very, very rapidly, which means that scientists and doctors have to continuously update or change the flu, vi uh, the flu vaccine in order to make sure it's relevant and able to protect us. So what Dan David Ho and his colleagues have managed to do at the Rockefeller in New York is to change things around a bit and use a DNA vaccine instead. Now, what they've done is to use H5N1. This is a strain of flu which is viewed as the best contender for the next pandemic, and they've built a genetic family tree for H5N1. So they looked at the gene sequences for 467 uh, isolates of flu and they looked specifically at a gene called HA, that's haemagglutinin, which is one of the proteins that flu uses to get into our cells. And from this genetic tree, they were able to go right to the root of the genetic tree and find a sequence which was the same in all of these different flu strains. And by turning that into a vaccine, in other words, they took the DNA from that and injected it into mice and then gave the mice muscle a little electric shock to help the DNA get into their cells. They produced mice that were strongly resistant. They made lots of antibodies and they made lots of white blood cells that could combat the flu. And the really good news was that they weren't just targeting one strain of the flu. The vaccine worked against a whole different class of flu viruses and this gave them very broad protection. And so the researchers are saying that this could be the way in which we can make vaccines very, very quickly and very effectively against a whole range of flus. So this is going to be a much better way of making vaccines then, and cheaper, I take, would it be? It will be a lot cheaper, and the other point is that you don't have to source millions of hen's eggs. You've got a virus, H5N1, which kills chickens. That's a very bad thing to have if you want to use eggs to grow your vaccine. Don't want to put all your eggs in one basket. We need a new strategy, and they're saying that these DNA vaccines are very good because they're cheap, but also they produce very broad repertoire of immune responses against a whole, a whole host of different viruses. Wonderful. Well, yes, I've been away for a while, but I shall now take you all back to that favourite place of mine, Into the Oceans, and uh, tell you about the fact that it is actually a myth that scuba divers, um, if they spy a glimmering pearl inside a giant clam and reach inside to steal it, that his or her arm will be grabbed by the slamming jaws of this twin-shelled mollusk. Now, giant clams do grow to over a metre long and they do make pearls, but it's virtually impossible to get stuck inside one. But giant clams have hit the science headlines recently with the discovery of a brand new species living in the Red Sea. It's the first giant clam discovery, new species that is, um, to to be found in 20 years, bringing the total number in the world up to just eight. And that's thanks to an international team of researchers led by Claudio Richter at the Alfred Wegener Institute for Polar and Marine Research in Germany. And what's more, this new clam has uncovered some of the oldest evidence yet of mankind's plundering of the oceans, which is rather sad. The new species is Tridacna costata, and it's incredibly rare today, which is one reason why it's been overlooked for so long. Um, but it's now been shown to be a separate species from all the others, um, based on studies of the shape and also its genetics. Now researchers have also looked back in time at the fossil record and they've discovered that this species used to be incredibly abundant. Around 125,000 years ago, Tridacna costata made up 80% of the species of giant clam living in the Red Sea. How did they know that? Well, they looked at the fossil record and they counted. It's very simple. They, don't you go back and you drill cores probably into old reefs that build up and you can identify the species from the way they look um, and count what's there and, and, you know, and compare it to today. And the fact is that now these, these species make up less than 1% of the species of clam that live in the Red Sea. So something happened a long time ago and it seems that the possible culprits of the clam's massive decline could be ancient hunter-gatherers who may well have taken a liking to these large and nutritious shellfish, which are 
let's face it, very easy to harvest because all you have to do is go and grab them. They won't run away. And it actually, the timing of their decline coincides rather suspiciously with when it was we think that Homo sapiens first began leaving Africa. And it's not just that, but also the clams used to be much bigger than they are today, which points an even stronger finger of blame that mankind, um, you know, was taking these big specimens at first a long time ago and only leaving the little ones behind. Is it because it's just this particular species which would have been very attractive that have gone that, that makes you conclude it's man and it's not just some other environmental thing going on or a virus that came along and attacked them, something like that? That sounds one very good explanation, exactly why only this one, not the other clams, which are going to be quite similar, but maybe they just weren't as big and juicy and obvious to you know, feed those uh, the hunter-gatherers a long, long time ago. So we're all up to our old tricks of savaging the environment until it's too late, basically. Thanks, Helen. Right, well, also this week, there's been a very exciting paper published in the journal PNAS this week by Paul Lichtenstein and his colleagues. They're at the Karolinska Institute in Sweden. And basically, they've found the genetic key to a happy marriage. And it's all down to a gene which, in fact, was first flushed out from voles, those tiny rodents. There are several species of these voles. There's one called the prairie vole. And these are a bit like swans and geese. They have one uh, partner for life. So they're very monogamous. But there's another species of vole, which is called the montane vole, which is much more footloose and fancy-free. These voles will mate with literally anything. And researchers have found that the reason for the difference in these voles is a gene called arginine vasopressin receptor 1A. It's a receptor, a chemical docking station for a chemical called AVP, arginine vasopressin. And what they found is that if you put the gene from the prairie vole, in other words, the one which is very monogamous, into the brains of the ones that are not very monogamous, then you can turn these footloose and fancy-free voles into monogamous voles. So it shows that there's a genetic basis for this. So what this group of researchers have now done is to say, well, is the same true in humans? So they went looking at the human equivalent of this gene they found in the voles, and it turns out that there are various forms of this gene. In this particular study, they looked at 552 uh, men in Sweden, and they found that there were 11 different forms of the gene in those people. But one particular form of the gene, uh, which is an allele called 334, that one, which was carried by about 40% of the people in the study, was strongly linked to marital disharmony and uh, imminent divorce proceedings and, and also people not being married. And what, what they've actually found, in fact, is that if people carry two copies of this particular form of the gene, so you have one gene from your father, one from your mother, if you've got both of your copies of the gene of this unusual allele, um, then what that means is you're actually half as likely to, to be married to your partner, you're more, much more likely to be cohabiting with them, and also you're twice as likely... Uh, to have faced divorce proceedings in the last 12 months. So these 34% of people who had two copies of this gene had had a sort of marital crisis in the last 12 months, compared with only about 16% of people who had either one copy of it or no copies of this gene. And why the researchers are saying this is important is not only should you perhaps be genetically testing your potential marital partner before you get married to them, um, but also it does hold the key to our understanding of human social sociality uh, because people who have um, very altruistic behaviour tend to have less of this particular gene, so they're more likely to care about other people. Also, people who have autism seem to over-inherit. There seems to be an over-representation of this particular form in people who have autism. And, of course, people with autism have a problem relating to other people's emotions. So it does all kind of fit together. So it's amazing to think that the voles have given us the clues to how we ourselves behave. It's quite, for me, it really blows my mind that we can look into our genes and just 
pick out something that's just so inherent in our behaviour like that. It's, and, it, and it's also in the moles. Absolutely incredible. But, sorry, voles. From one little furry creature to another one, the ones that fly in the sky, with a new study that has shown that bats might, quite, might stay quiet and listen to each other when they're out hunting for their dinner. That's according to Cynthia Moss and her colleagues from the University of Maryland in the States, who have been studying big brown bats in captivity and tracking how their ultrasonic signals change when the group are flying around looking for their insect prey. Now, we all know that nocturnal bats use echolocation to forage for prey and that most of the time humans can't hear what they're, the noises they're making because our ears only hear up to about 20 kilohertz, whereas bats can chirp to around 100 kilohertz, so much, much higher kilohertz. Um, and uh, so what Moss and her team discovered when they were listening to these bats feeding that sometimes they seem to just go quiet for a very, very small amount of time, for only 800 milliseconds, which really doesn't sound like much, but for bats that live very fast-paced lives, it's actually quite a significant amount of time given you know how fast they, they actually live their lives. Um, so we don't know quite for sure why the bats are going quiet like this, but it's possible that one bat stops making sounds and eavesdrops on the sounds of another bat, perhaps to help them cross, preventing themselves from getting cross signals and really kind of jamming up the, um, the airwaves. And you can imagine that that's something that could happen quite a lot. And if, if this is the case, if we can prove that's what they're doing, it's going to prove, provide some evidence for a type of cooperation in these mammals that we kind of have suspected for a long time, but we've never had any proof of, which is rather nice. Certainly is. There was a paper in the journal PLOS One a few months ago where scientists looked at how loud bats scream and because they're producing such high-frequency signals, they have to make a, a much louder sound because the, the sound doesn't go very far. And they were making more noise than the average Who concert. 140 decibels was the average noise from a, a, a bat, so certainly a loud sound. So when they shut up for a second, uh, that's a good thing. The other good thing was that they were considerate because as they neared their targets, they did turn it down a bit. When, and when they got near other bats, they turned, they turned the sound down a little bit. So it could be there's a jamming thing or they're just being considerate. Who knows? It's The Naked Scientist with Chris and Helen. This week on The Naked Scientist, we're talking about the Large Hadron Collider, which is the world's largest and the highest energy particle accelerator that's ever been made. The Large Hadron Collider has been called the biggest science experiment in the world. So you might think that there would be no way that we could come up with a similar experiment for you to do at home. Well, that can't stop Ben and Dave, and <laughs> who have come up with a kitchen science to explain why the, la- the Large Hadron Collider at the LHC needs to be quite so big. And to join in, you don't need I'm good and pleased to say you don't need millions of pounds worth of technology buried underground in Switzerland. All you need is a tennis ball, a couple of plastic bottles and some string. So here's Ben and Dave to explain what to do. For this week's Kitchen Science, we wanted to look at some of the more basic science behind the Large Hadron Collider. Now, I wouldn't put it past Dave Ansell to have built a scale model in his own carriage. But Dave, what are we going to look at today? Well, unfortunately, there's a very limited number of particle physics experiments you can do at home, and I think we've probably done them already on kitchen science. So instead, we're going to look at one of the reasons why the Large Hadron Collider has to be so big. It's got a circumference of about 27 kilometres, which is absolutely huge. And that 27 kilometres makes up the ring around which they push these particles to smash them together at really high speeds. Yes, a Large Hadron Collider is a circle because they accelerate these particles up to very, very, very close to the speed of light and that takes quite a long time. So they could either use a very, very, very long straight collider or they could do a circle and they can go round and round and round. And so they can accelerate them slowly over several rotations. And we're going to be looking at some of the forces required to make things go in circles like that. OK, well, getting protons to turn around in a circle is probably a bit fiddly for us. So what are we using instead? Well, instead of a proton, we're going to use a tennis ball or something else, which is quite light and not too hard, so it's not going to damage anything too much if your contraption falls apart. And how are we going to get it to spin round? Basically, we're going to tie it to a piece of string, 
and then put that piece of string through a tube and hang a weight on the end of the piece of string and then spin it around in circles and see what happens to the weight. So are we just using a traditional weighing scale weight or just something that weighs about the right amount? Basically anything which weighs about a kilogram. In this case, we can use a bottle of squash. And you're also going to need a couple of plastic bags just to hold the tennis ball and your weights. OK, now you said you are going to pass this through a tube. People at home might not have spare lengths of tubing sitting about, so what are you going to use? Well, it basically just wants to be something which a string can move through smoothly. In this case, we're going to use the top of a bottle, which has got quite a narrow neck, so I've chopped the top off, and then you have a nice tube of about the right size. So, Dave, how much of the bottle do we need? About, a, say, a hand's width? Yeah, you're going to hold it with your hands, so you want it about a hand's width. OK, let's get that cut out. Be very careful because the edge of the plastic bottle could be quite sharp. OK, so now we have our tube, so I guess the next thing we need is to find a way to attach our ball to the bit of string. That's right, so basically just put the ball inside a plastic bag. Normal carrier bag is ideal. Now I'm going to tie a knot just above that ball because otherwise the bag tends to blow up and form a parachute shape and slow the ball down a lot. So we need to squeeze the air out of the bag first and then tie a knot in it and this should just be really just a, a holster for the ball. Yeah, that's right. And then you've got a nice handle on the other end to tie the string to. Now, how much string should we use? Well, basically, you're going to have the ball at one end in one plastic bag and your weights in another plastic bag at the other end. The whole lot wants to be a bit longer than you are, so shorter than you can reach with your outstretched arm. So if I stretch my arm up to the top, holding the ball, the weight should still be dangling free? Yeah, just a bit. So we've tied the string on now. What's the next thing we need to do? You want to add your tube onto the piece of string. If you're using a bit of a bottle, you want to make sure the end where the cap screws on wants to be near the ball because the string's going to be rubbing around that. You don't want it rubbing around the sharp edges at the other end. So now we have the ball on one end with our tube in the middle and so I guess the next thing to do is attach the weight to the other end. Yep, so basically just tie the other bag on the other end. So we're putting a bottle, in our case a bottle of squash, into another fairly normal carrier bag. OK, well, that seems nice and secure. So now we have a ball on one end, the weight on the other, and our tube in the middle on the piece of string. So what do we want to do now? Well, now, if I just hold the tube in the middle and let go of the two, the weight's going to be much heavier than the ball, so it should just drop down. It did, yes. It made no effort whatsoever, hit the ground, and the ball came flying up towards my face. Thank you, Dave. But I'm not at all surprised by that. Surely that's just to do with the weight. Yes, it's perfectly simple. The bottle's got much more weight than the ball has, so the bottle drops down, lifting up the ball. So what's that got to do with moving protons in a circle? Well, what I want you to do at home is, instead of just dropping it, I want you to spin the ball round in a circle over your head whilst you hold on to the tube and change the speed and see what happens to the weight. So what do you at home think will happen when Dave is spinning this tennis ball around his head? What do you think will happen to the tennis ball and what do you think will happen to the weight on the other end of the string? We'll be back with the first test of our LHC model later on in the show. So, what do you think will happen to the weighted end while Dave swings the ball round his head? And how will this tell us anything at all about the LHC? Well, do let us know what you think and we'll get back to Ben and Dave later on in the show. Stripping down science. OK, let's do it. The Naked Scientists. It's 
Chris Smith and Helen Scales with you as the Naked Scientists. We're talking about the Large Hadron Collider this week and particle physics. And particle physics. I keep wanting to say particle physicists because I'm staring at Ben Alanak across the studio who's going to be on in just a couple of seconds. Now we've got a couple of questions that have come in uh, this week. Got one here for you, uh, Helen. This is from Bruce Rogers and he says, love the podcast. Um, I'm listening to Silicon Valley. Um, why is it that fish don't freeze solid in Antarctic water? And can we exploit the fact that they don't freeze? It's a very good question. Wonderful question. Thank you very much. Um, because, of course, the um, the seas around Antarctica get incredibly cold because of the salt in them. They actually can go down to minus 1.9 degrees centigrade. So how on earth can things live there? Well, in the 1980s, scientists discovered that Antarctic cod or ice fish actually have antifreeze inside their blood. And since then, we scientists have been poking around to try and find out how it works. And we're still not quite sure, but we, it basically seems to be something to do with the... Um, these are things called glycoproteins, so they're uh, glycopeptides, sorry, which are a protein covered in sugar, which seem to basically stop ice crystals from growing any bigger by um, various ways of interacting with, with the water there. And it also seems that the cod are able to, to survive with little tiny crystals in their blood. Um, their blood still flows, even if there's some little ones. As long as they don't grow any bigger, they're OK. And what can we do with it? Well, it's, a, it's something that's, you know, it's, a bit, it's possible that we might be able to use these antifreezes for um, preserving do- um, organs, for donors, things like that, because it's the idea of how do these, you know, stopping things from freezing and, and not deteriorating while they are frozen. Um, and it could also be a, a, a sort of a better, more environmentally sensitive way of actually doing antifreeze for things like roads. Um, and so if someone's actually started putting them the genes for it inside a yeast and so they can create it artificially and create lots of it. So it's a, it's a possibility we might be using it. And our cars, perhaps. <laughs> So I've got a question for you, Chris. This is from Gary, the milkman in Exeter, who loves the podcast. Thank you very much for your email, Gary. He wants to know, why is when he's listening to a piece of music or indeed watching the Olympics and a gold medal is won, why does he get tingles down his spine, goosebumps and perhaps even be drawn to tears? What's happening biologically? Um, I think, Gary, that this is all down to something called mirror neurons. And there was a paper in Nature Neuroscience a few weeks ago and they were looking at Olympic sportsmen and they were looking at specifically basketball players and they showed that pro basketball players, when they were watching footage of people trying to put a ball into a basket, even though they didn't show them all the footage, they just showed them that the ball in the, the hand of the thrower and just up to the moment when they threw it and then they stopped the footage and said which balls are going to go into the basket or not and the pro players were able to correctly 70% of the time just by looking at the hand position of these people work out whether they were going to get a basket and what they did at the same time was to measure the activity of the muscles in the subject's hands and they found that what these people were doing was superimposing what they saw was the position of the thrower's hands onto their own motor areas of their brain in order to work out and compare what that thrower was doing compared with what they would do in the same circumstances in order to work out what they thought was going to happen. So this is an elegant way of showing that when we experience the world around us, we superimpose what we're seeing other people doing, what we're seeing going on around us, onto our own internal sort of map of the world, these mirror neurons, and these reflect the behaviour of other people, showing us what sorts of emotions they're experiencing or what they're thinking, helping us to predict what they're going to do and therefore how to react and respond to them. So when someone feels sad, it makes you feel a bit sad, you feel their pain, and this means that you can then put yourself in their shoes so you know how to respond appropriately. It's all about empathy. So I think that probably what Gary's feeling is the effect of his mirror neurons because pretty much all bits of the brain have these neurons, especially the bits of the brain that, that sense anxiety, fear, disgust, and maybe even motor and visual things. 
So a little part of us also winning those gold medals. Now we're going to devote next week's show to catching up with your fantastic questions. So do send us more. Um, the, the email address is chris at thenakedscientist.com. Now it's only a couple of days pretty much until the LHC, the Large Hadron Collider, actually gets turned on. And uh, we can all read in the newspapers the scare stories that have been bounding around, people saying there's going to be black holes and uh, we're going to blow up the Earth and all that kind of thing. Well, to address some of that, we've got Ben Alanak here. He's a particle physicist from the University of Cambridge. hopefully going to help us to understand a bit more about the, how the LHC actually is going to work. So, Ben, welcome to The Naked Scientist. Great to have you with us. Um, oh, thanks. It's great to be here. Well, well let, first of all, let's have a look at, at what some people are saying, because we've got Bruce in America, Julian in South America, Africa. Uh, Joshua's emailed us and also Steve is on the line from Essex all with the same question. Steve, welcome to The Naked Scientist. Hello there. W- what was it that your main concern was? Um, basically, uh, it is to do with the black holes um, really just how safe are the experiments at the um, Large Hadron Collider. Yeah, um, so... Uh, yeah, good question. <laughs> um, basically, the experiments we know from current data are safe. And the reason that we know that they're safe is that um, there are cosmic rays that have been measured zipping around with about um, a billion times more energy than each of the beams um, in the experiment. And um, they basically, if there was going to be some big problem caused by collisions of protons, um, uh, you would they would have already caused the problem and wiped out stars and planets and stuff uh, that are around us. So we know from current data from astrophysics um, that there's going to be no no problem, basically, no, no safety issue. So are the same sorts of particles with the same sorts of energies that we're going to be seeing in CERN next week already hitting the Earth? Is that what you're saying, Ben? Absolutely. And, and, and with even more more energy. Billion years. Yeah, so, that's correct. Yeah. So I reckon that's probably pretty pretty um, damning evidence that everything's okay, Steve. Hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Will you be tuning in to the kickoff on Wednesday? Um, yes, I'm keeping I'm keeping a close uh, close eye on it. Thanks for joining <laughs> us, Steve. Good to having the show. Don't worry. Okay. That's uh, Steve from Essex. Ben, as a particle physicist, tell us a little bit about actually what the LHC is all about, please. The LHC is um, a gigantic experiment. It's the biggest experiment that's ever been staged. And uh, we're going to collide protons together and try and find out about the early universe and uh, particles. So when you say try and find out about the early universe, why do we need to find out about that specifically? What's different then that, that's not around today? There were particles around we think that decay very quickly so they've decayed they've were produced in the early universe and they've all decayed away now and we'd like to produce them and um, study them what are these particles well there are actually various things we'd like to see one example is the famous higgs boson that's the one that's uh, responsible for fundamental particles getting mass the theories all tell you that the particles have to be massless, and of course we know that's not the case. And the Higgs boson is the missing piece of the of the puzzle that would explain why the other particles have mass. Well, let's just sort of drill down into into what we mean by fundamental particles and, and what's inside atoms and things. So mm. sort of working outwards inwards. So we have an atom, and this has got a nucleus, protons and neutrons in it, and electrons around the outside. So yeah. take me from there further inside. Okay. Yeah, we have this atom. So let's uh, go down into the centre, the central positive core, and uh, that's made of protons and neutrons, and they have structure within them as well. If you go, if you zoom down, you can see three little point-like type things in the protons and neutrons. They're called quarks, and they're kind of held together by some uh, strong, sticky uh, quantum force that's, uh, you know, holding them together. 
We don't actually know what that force is, presumably. We know quite a lot about it. It's uh, the strong nuclear force. And uh, in fact, by blowing them apart, you can, you can tell quite a lot about what that thing is. And how do we know that those quarks are the simplest, smallest thing? How do we know there are not things that make up the quarks themselves? Yeah, we don't. Well, all we know is that they look simple down to, you know, 10 to the minus 15 metres. So, you know, that's um, a billionth, less than a billionth of a millimetre. Um, and you can't see any smaller dots at that scale than those but you, you can't just say for sure I mean perhaps if you look even have an even bigger microscope than the LHC um, you will see substructure and that's one of the things we want to check actually so although the LHC is effectively an atom smasher mm. and it's creating enormous amounts of energy effectively it's behaving as a microscope because you're blasting particles to pieces and this makes the components that make up those particles come out so you can see them that's the idea it's a weird paradox that um, to see smaller things you have to build bigger and bigger machines to get to higher and higher energies and then you can probe things really deeply so does this mean if the lhc doesn't bear fruit we're going to potentially have to build a bigger one or do you think that this is going to basically answer the question once and for all what what is the the fundamental nature of matter it's going to answer the question about the Higgs boson, in my opinion. We already know from indirect signals in previous data roughly what mass this Higgs boson has, and you can calculate and see that the LHC is going to have enough energy now to produce them. So if the Higgs theory is wrong, then there'll be something else there that, um, you know, that'll be even more exciting, actually, uh, and we'll be able to investigate that. There are other possibilities like producing dark particles of dark matter, which is a bit more speculative, and um, that would be extremely interesting too. When you, you're mentioning the work of Peter Higgs, who was the mm. scientist at Edinburgh University, who came up with this, this notional particle that everyone wants to see but no one has ever detected, how does that fit into the big picture? What actually is it and what does it do? Okay, so particles, uh, which we imagine as little dots travelling around, are actually, when you look into it, they're ripples on a field that's throughout all of the universe. So an electron, for instance, we might see it as a particle, but if you look at it really closely, it looks like a kind of ripple in some C, electron C, that's all throughout the universe. And we have the same thing for the Higgs boson. The idea is this kind of see this jelly throughout the universe when the universe is small and hot, it's runny, other particles can zip through it without noticing it. As the universe gets bigger, the jelly kind of condenses. This is the special thing about the Higgs. And other particles can feel it and have to be kind of pushed through it. And uh, Newton told us that, you know, when you have to push something along, it has inertia and therefore mass. And so these Higgs particles and fields, they, they kind of drag other particles and give them mass. That's the idea. So this would be almost like a parachute on the back end of a, of a big vehicle or something. It's, it's almost like a drag force. Yeah, absolutely. And, and is it everywhere? Yeah, um, all of these fields exist throughout all of the universe. That's so when you say you're going to create the Higgs particle in the LHC, mm. if it's everywhere already, what are you doing? So the field, the C, is there, but what you want to do is create a little ripple of it, which is the particle itself. So a localised wave, if you like, that is the actual particle. So you're, you're not actually making the particle, you're just making it show itself by yeah. disturbing the, the field that it normally creates. That's absolutely right. And so if, if it does pop up, you make these ripples, what are you actually going to see? How would you see those ripples? Okay, so this, this Higgs particle, if you produce it, it decays very quickly within um, 10 to the minus 20 seconds, so incredibly fast. And it decays into other ordinary particles, which you see come out of the collision point, and there's lots of electronics and stuff built around that to track these things coming out. And what you have to do is look at their energies and uh, infer back to you know what happened at the interaction point 
And basically, what will happen is, if you produce a Higgs boson, they'll come out with half of its mass, each, roughly speaking, each particle will have half its mass. So you add the energies up of these two things, and, uh, of course, there's all sorts of things happening. But over a thousand billion events, uh, a thousand billion collisions, you should see a lot of them coming out with the same kind of energy, and, you know, you have to extrapolate back to find the Higgs. And what will it mean to the field of particle physics if you don't see the Higgs boson when the LHC gets up to full working capacity? It will mean that a lot of textbooks have to be rewritten and it will be extremely exciting. <laughs> and expensive, potentially. What would be another explanation? Is there a sort of counterpoint? There's the Higgs theory. Is, is there any other way of thinking about it? There are some other contenders, but nothing anywhere near as successful in terms of the Higgs. I personally believe that something like the Higgs theory. So another example is... Um, it's going to be difficult to explain. There are two two quarks, actually, that have become very tightly bound together, and uh, they they can act like a Higgs, so even though it isn't really a fundamental particle, it still looks a bit like it. I mean, whatever you cook up, whatever theory you cook up, it's got to behave in some way like the Higgs, because they're indirect signals from previous data. And is that basically what you'll be working on with the people at the LHC, or have you got your own suite of things that you're you're also interested in, your sort of pet topic? My pet topic is, uh, is actually supersymmetry. <laughs> so these, this is a, a theory to, which goes one step beyond the Higgs and um, explains why it's so light, actually. You'd expect it to be a billion, billion times heavier just from quantum fluctuations unless, uh, you know, something happens in the theory to keep it light. And uh, supersymmetry is an example of something that uh, works very well with that. And it, it predicts lots of new particles. It can predict one of the particles can be the dark matter um, particle, the one that's out there in the universe that, you know, astrophysical observations tell us there's there's some weird stuff out there that we can't see. You know, it's transparent, but it has gravitational force. And um, we might be able to uh, produce some of those, hopefully. Sounds a bit dodgy, though, Ben, to, to be working on science that's based on science that hasn't even been proven yet. But I guess that's that's cosmology and, and particle physics all, all through, isn't it? Uh, well, that's right. And that, that's why we need to do the experiment to check it. I mean, uh, this particularly is very speculative. And uh, I'd give it about 50-50 chance so uh, you know you have to throw your dice and uh, take your chances thank you that's ben alanak he's a, a physicist from the university of cambridge fancy listening to the naked scientists in your bed <laughs> on your way to work or even at work mm -hmm. why not subscribe to our podcast for more information visit nakedscientist.com forward slash podcast this is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and with Helen Scales. We're talking particle physics this week, and we're also uh, talking about the LHC, which powers up this week coming. And joining us now from the control room in CERN at the Large Hadron Collider is Guy Crockford, who's one of the engineers on the project. Hello, Guy. Hello. Thank you for joining us. Yeah, good um, to be here. Well, it, it, you must be very excited. It's a very exciting time for all of us uh, here in the control room, yes. Um, what's the sort of launch procedure building up towards Wednesday? Okay, so at the moment we've reached a point where the machine is ready to um, take the first beams. And in fact, we've already made some pre-tests where we've uh, managed to synchronize the LHC with the um, injector machines and um, inject beam into the LHC, but just uh, circulate uh, part of the way around with the 27-kilometer um, circumference. How so do you so actually generate those particles in the first place? Okay, so the beam starts off as a, inside actually a, a bottle of hydrogen, and um, so a hydrogen atom uh, contains a proton nucleus uh, with an electron orbiting around it. So we simply um, strip off the electron and uh, we start to accelerate um, beams of uh, protons from, from this hydrogen bottle. 
but it has to go through a chain of uh, four separate accelerators before it gets up to the energy that we can inject it into the LHC. So you spin it up to speed first in a sort of smaller yeah. version, and, and once it gets going quickly enough, this is presumably using magnetism to accelerate it. Well, we use um, magnets to guide the machine around the circular path of these um, circular accelerators and, um, and focus the beam, but we use um, radio frequency cavities, which actually give the beam its energy. So uh, the reason for having circular machines is that the, the um, beam can make many passages through these, these cavities. And, so uh, and, sorry. And, and as yes. it gets going, how fast will the particles end up travelling? Well, when the beam is uh, up to a collision energy of the LHC, it will be extremely close to the speed of light, uh, actually 99.99999% of the speed of light. It's pretty fast. That's so, as fast as you can go, yeah. And, and once you've got that stream of particles going at that speed, the, the whole circumference of the LHC is 27 kilometres. So how quickly exactly. will, they, will they do a lap? Yeah, so at the speed of light, uh, they, they travel once around the 27 kilometres, um, well, uh, 11,000 times, in fact, uh, in one second. So that's pretty fast. Um, yeah. um, you've got one group of protons going in one direction and one group going in the other direction. Exactly. Yeah. And then when they get to the critical speed, you then make them run into each other. Yes, yeah, so the particularity of the LHC is that we have um, two um, vacuum pipes in which the two counter-rotating beams of protons can circulate. And uh, they actually cross over each other at the four experimental detectors and uh, when the beam reaches the uh, top collision energy, we then uh, make some fine adjustments at these crossing angles to bring the beams into collision inside the detectors. And then when they smack into each other, what happens? Well, the protons, most of the protons, in fact, will just pass straight through each other like uh, clouds passing through each other. But a few um, protons will actually impact with each other and annihilate and uh, transform into energy, which um, can create these, uh, hopefully, these uh, strange particles that existed uh, soon after the beginning of the universe. And, and to put it into perspective so people can sort of appreciate the kind of energies you're dealing with here, yeah. when they run into each other, how hard are they going to collide? Well, the, um, the actual collision is, uh, is not uh, very remarkable. In fact, if you clap your hands together, you're probably um, making a collision of greater energy than the particles. But the remarkable thing about the LHC is that these collisions are taking place on an atomic scale. So it is very concentrated, not very large amounts of energy, but extremely concentrated. So when, when you want to build something on the scale of the LHC, yeah. what are the sort of engineering constraints there? How do you go about doing this? Okay, so um, first of all, to be able to uh, make a beam circulate in, uh, around the LHC, you need a, a a vacuum pipe. Inside this vacuum pipe, you need a ultra-high vacuum. In fact, the vacuum of the LHC is um, about um, 20 times lower than the, the pressure on the surface of the moon. Um, once you have the beam circulating, you need to keep it on its um, circular trajectory using uh, very strong magnets. So we have um, two main kinds of magnet in the LHC, dipole or two-pole magnets, which keep the beam on its um, trajectory around the ring and uh, quadrupole magnets, four-pole magnets, which um, focus the very intense beams of protons to, to keep them inside the aperture of the vacuum pipe. Now, the um, fields inside these uh, uh, dipole and quadrupole magnets are so high, in fact, it's about um, 170,000 times the Earth's magnetic field, 
um, that we need to resort to um, superconducting technology to make these magnets. Um, so the coils of the magnets are made of a special alloy called uh, niobium-titanium. And uh, if you reduce the temperature of these coil down to very low temperatures, I'm talking uh, minus 270 degrees Celsius, uh, then the coil will conduct electricity with zero resistance. That way we can pass huge current of uh, almost 12,000 amperes through the coil and produce uh, this, these very powerful um, magnetic fields to um, keep the beam uh, under control. We actually had a, an, um, any, a question from Joshua on our forum, which yeah. was just about the temperature, and he wanted to know, you know why was it it needs to be kept so cold? And it's you know, nearly absolute zero, isn't it? And, and how do you yeah, keep it so cold as well? Okay, so in fact, we have a huge uh, cryogenic refrigeration pump to um, cool down the whole machine. Um, we need to use uh, liquid helium to um, keep the magnets cold. Uh, the first uh, stage of this process is to um, pre-cool the uh, gaseous helium using uh, liquid nitrogen, which is very cheap, but we need uh, huge quantities of liquid nitrogen. Then uh, once that will bring the temperature down to about 80 degrees Kelvin, so something like minus 200 Celsius. Uh, then we use uh, um, cryogenic refrigeration plants to um, uh, reduce the temperature down to the boiling point of helium. So then we're getting down to about um, 4 degrees Kelvin, or, but we, this is still not um, cold enough for the um, fields required and the currents that we require inside the um, LHC. So we have further uh, cold compressors and refrigeration plants to, which reduces the pressure in the helium down to um, 150 uh, millibars. Sorry. And um, at this point, we, the temperature reduces to 1.9 Kelvin, which is the operating temperature. That's uh, really okay. quite cold, yeah. isn't it? Um, no, no, one colder other, than the outer, outer space, in fact. Colder yeah. than Pluto, that's for sure. Yeah. Uh, now, one last question, Guy, which is yeah. at this time of rising energy bills, what is your electricity bill? In fact, the uh, energy consumption of the LHC is um, similar to the, the whole of the um, city of Geneva, domestic consumption. So um, let me see, this is about, uh, we're talking about 120 um, megawatts of power. I mean, roughly how many, how many households yeah. do you think that is in, in Geneva? Yeah, I mean, there's a population of about 50,000 households in Geneva. So. And that's, uh, that's quite a lot of energy, isn't it? Yes, indeed. Yeah. Okay. But it's all in, all in, good, all in a good, for, good, for a good cause, I think is what I'm trying to say. Thank you very much for joining yeah. us, Guy. Yeah, you're welcome. My pleasure. That was Guy Crockford, who's one of the engineers on the project at the LHC, and hopefully all will go according to plan when he presses the button on Wednesday. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris and Helen. So what will the LHC mean for physicists? Well, Dr. Tara Shears is from the University of Liverpool, and she works on the LHC bee detector. She's actually looking for antimatter. So, Tara, thank you very much for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Um, tell us a bit about your work. So my experiment, LHCB, was designed to look into the question of why, when we think the universe started in an equal mixture of matter and antimatter, why there only seems to be one type, matter, around today. And we, we think this inequality arose sometime very early in the universe's history, sometime in the first minute even. But we don't know why it should be. We don't know why that happened. We think it's due to some difference in the behaviour of matter and antimatter, but we're not quite sure what. So what you're saying so, is there's basically two types of stuff. There's matter and antimatter. This will be like the north and south pole of a magnet. And what we see in the universe at the moment is all the north poles begging the question, where have all the south poles gone? That's exactly right. Antimatter is really, in a sense, like the mirror reflection of ordinary matter. And we can 
find out whether it's present anywhere because one particular peculiarity that antimatter has is that whenever it meets normal matter, it annihilates. It's quite dramatic. If you have a gram of matter meeting a gram of antimatter, you get an explosion equivalent to about five kilotons of TNT. So you can actually make antimatter? You can generate antimatter at CERN in very, very small amounts. And what happens at the LHC is that when we have the beam collisions, the proton-proton collisions, and as, as Ben's already told you, some of the, well, we convert the energy of those beams into new particles, some of those new particles will be antimatter particles. So they're made of basically the same building blocks as matter particles then? That's right. So for it, to give you an example, for every quark, we have an antimatter quark equivalent. And for something like the electron, there's an antimatter equivalent that we call a positron. So every particle that we know about in the universe also has its antimatter equivalent. So how can you turn matter into antimatter, though? Well, what happens in the LHC is, in the collision, we either generate matter in the form of matter or antimatter, if that makes sense. It comes in one variety or the other. And what we detect in our experiments is maybe the decay products of those particles, if they don't live for very long. And by looking at what those particles decay to and identifying them, we can infer whether we had a, a fundamental particle in the first place that was matter or antimatter. Because you're starting with a beam of protons. So these are matter protons, though, aren't they? So if you can make antimatter using those, does that argue that they're made of the same thing as antimatter? No, not, not at all, not at all. Because you've, you've got to think that when we have this beam collision, we have a certain amount of energy. So whatever collides in those protons, and like Ben said, it's like swishing two wet rags together or two squidgy oranges. You know, only part of the proton collides with each other. That converts to pure energy, and then via Einstein's equation, to mass, to particles. And antimatter particles have the same mass as normal particles. So in that respect, these collisions... It doesn't really matter what's colliding together. You have this annihilation of energy, and then that energy can be distributed into different particles. It doesn't matter whether they're matter or antimatter. And then presumably this will give us insights into, into the nature of antimatter so we can understand perhaps how to use it. Well, we're ho that's what we're hoping with the LHCB experiment. We're hoping to get a better handle on the behaviour of antimatter as opposed to ordinary matter because we think there must have been some difference to give rise to this asymmetry which has allowed our universe to only exist in the one state today. So where do you think all the antimatter has gone in the universe? Is it just all jostled somewhere or is it in some other, I don't know, um, dimension that we can't see? Oh, that's a $100 million question, isn't it? <laughs> I wish I knew the answer to that. So we, we don't know, basically. That's why we've built the experiment. That's why we're, we're doing our research. We don't know if, for example, there's some peculiarity in the behaviour of antimatter, which means that it, it decays more quickly than normal matter. And so that's why it all seemed to die out more quickly, if you liked, in the early universe. But there are theories around, very theories that I'm, I don't even pretend to understand, which say, well, we could have antimatter in alternative parallel universes to our own. That's where it all went. And we just happen to be in a parallel universe where there's only matter. So there are, there are many hypotheses, if you like, but little experimental evidence to really pin down the explanation. Well, hopefully you'll get some answers pretty soon. Tara, thank you very much for joining us on The Naked Scientist. Pleasure. That's Tara Shears from the University of Liverpool. So we've learned a lot today about the LHC, but does it mean that we've overwritten something else in our brains that we learned when we were back in school? Now it's time to welcome Diana O'Carroll back into the studio for our question of the week. Hello, Diana. Hello, Helen. It's lovely to have you back. What have you got for us this week? Uh, well, this week it's all about memory. So I'm going to try and remember what the question was. 
Hello, my name is Sean and I'm from Edinburgh. I would like to know how much information can my brain take before I start overwriting stuff that's already there? Is all this learning good for me or should I concentrate on life? So is it really healthy to listen to the naked scientists? Hi, Sean. I'm Ian McLaren from the University of Exeter. I work on learning memory and cognition. Uh, you asked if the brain overwrites older information each time I learn something new. The answer is when you learn new things, you do forget the older stuff to some extent, but it's not as bad as it sounds. Say you learn a, a list of metals and flower names, and then afterwards you learn a list of trees and plants. Learning that second list will make your memory for the first worse, but we don't think it overwrites it. If I now tell you that that first list was metals and flower names and you use those cues, things you'd apparently forgotten resurface. It seems like they were harder to retrieve, and we think that inaccessibility protects them, actually, from being overwritten. Because if you didn't protect it in that way, it would get overwritten, and you really would lose stuff. So the other question was, is all this learning good for me, or should I concentrate on learning less? The problem as we age with our memory seems to be not a lack of capacity, but we get worse at using it. We're not as good at controlling it. So if you keep on learning things and uh, using your memory a great deal, that can only help. It's a use it or lose it kind of idea. Hope that helps. So learning new stuff doesn't quite push out the old stuff. It can just make it a bit less accessible. Just like exercise, the best thing to do is to take your brain for a regular jog through a science radio show, for example. Can't think what you'd be talking about, Diana. <laughs> We've had lots of response on this question on the forum from Make It Lady, who said that when they he or she learnt Japanese, they completely forgot about all the maths they learned at school, and no matter how much they tried to relearn, nothing was jogged. Rod said that sometimes your brain goes through a sort of closet clearance, chucking out all the old, unfashionable memories it no longer needs. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, moving on from radiating knowledge to radiating watches. Hi, I'm Sandra, and I'm calling from Melbourne. I was just wondering, is there any radiation that would come from a glow-in-the-dark watch that could be harmful to the wearer? So are glow-in-the-dark watches dangerous, or should we keep them in lead-lined boxes? Send your answers to chris at thenakedscientist.com or enter your thoughts on the matter in our forum at thenakedscientist.com forward slash forum. Thank you very much, Diana. That's Diana O'Carroll, who not only glows in the dark, also walks on water. Terrific. See you next week, Diana. Thanks you. Thank you for coming in. Laying the facts bare... The Naked Scientists. You're listening to The Naked Scientists with Chris and Helen. Now let's go back to Ben and Dave to find out how a spinning tennis ball around your head might relate to particle physics. Welcome back to today's Kitchen Science, where we're doing an LHC-themed experiment involving spinning a ball around Dave's head. Now, Dave, how have you got this set up? What we've done is taken a tennis ball, attached it to one end of a piece of string, put the piece of string through a tube and attach the other end to a kilo or so of weight. And then I'm going to spin this ball around my head. OK, now this is the bit that sounds a bit dangerous, but let's give it a go. Let's start spinning. So, Dave, I'm going to step back so you can spin it. OK, so I've got the tube in one hand, and I'm going to spin the ball around my head. I'm going to let go of the weight. OK, well, I'm keeping my distance from Dave, because he is getting that ball spinning quite quickly. But the weight is actually holding up. The weight of the ball hasn't changed, but because it's spinning, it seems to be holding up the weight. Now I'm going to speed up the ball. OK, he's spinning it even quicker now. It's going in a much bigger circle, and I'm backing off. That's going quite a long way around Dave's head now, but it's pulled the bag up even further. So obviously the bigger the circle, the higher the bag gets pulled up. Dave, can you stop so that I can actually come in and chat to you? OK, I'll just drop it down to the ground. Gently. OK, that's good. 
Oh, right, now I can safely come back and talk to you. Now, that was quite an obvious thing to see. When you were spinning the ball faster, it went in a much bigger circle and lifted the weight up, almost to right by your hand. What's going on here? Well, Isaac Newton worked out a few hundred years ago that all objects want to carry on going in a straight line. And unless you apply a force to them, they will carry on going in that straight line. Now, if you want to make something go in a circle, it obviously isn't a straight line, so you've got to apply a force to it. So this tennis ball, if we weren't pulling it with the string, would carry on a straight line and fly off into another garden. Exactly as you'd expect if the string broke. Yeah. Okay, so we're using the string to apply a force onto the ball, and that keeps it moving in a circle rather than just flying off in a straight line. But what's the weight got to do with it? Well, it's not my hand which is applying the force to the string. It's actually the weight, because the tube is very slippery, so the string can move easily through it. So the weight is the only thing which is applying tension to the string and pulling the ball inwards and making it go in a circle. So why is it that the weight moved up and down depending on how fast you were spinning the ball? Well, you need more force to make something go round a tight corner if you're going fast and if you're going slow. You might have noticed this if you try and run round a corner on gravel. You can walk round the corner perfectly fine, but if you try and run round the same corner, there's not enough grip between your feet and the ground, and you fall over. It can be a very painful lesson to learn. <laughs> well, exactly the same thing's true of the ball. If you speed up the ball, then the ball's going to require more force than the weight can apply to make it go around that corner, so it will end up going in a bigger circle, lifting up the weight. And once it gets to a bigger circle, then it's going through a less tight corner, so the weight can pull it in a circle, even though it's going faster in a straight line. So the circle gets bigger, because this requires less force to go in a big circle quickly than it does to go in a smaller circle at the same speed, because of the fact that it takes more force to turn a tight corner. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's the reason why the LHC is so huge. Because if you tried to make these protons go that speed around a small ring, maybe the size of this garden, the forces you'd have to apply using magnetic fields would have to be absolutely immense. And we just can't make magnets that strong. So they use magnetic fields, I'm guessing, in the place of our bit of string. Yes, if you have a moving charged particle like the protons going around the LHC or in fact electrons in an old-fashioned television. So then the magnetic field causes the particles to go around a corner. So in the LHC the protons will go around the ring and in an old-fashioned TV there's a beam of electrons which paint the picture and the beam is steered by applying different magnetic fields to it by a couple of coils at the back. And this is also why you can actually really mess up an old cathode ray tube TV just by putting a magnet near the screen. We did this in a kitchen science a while ago. Yeah, that's right. If you add extra magnetic fields to it, then the electrons end up going where they shouldn't have done and it distorts the picture. So even though at the LHC they're going around a 27-kilometre circle, the magnetic fields they're using must still be huge in order to get close to the speed of light. Yeah, they're tens of thousands times stronger than the Earth's magnetic field, so incredibly strong magnets. And the only way you can get a magnetic field that strong is by using superconductors, which have to be cooled down to about minus 271 degrees centigrade. So phenomenally low temperatures and phenomenally huge forces that they're having to use. Let's just hope that the LHC does indeed find some fantastic new physics. That's all for Kitchen Science this week. We'll be back very soon. Thanks, guys. And you can read all about this and other kitchen science experiments on our website at thenakedscientist.com forward slash kitchen science. And that includes videos of last week's incredible chocolate teapot, which apparently Ben and Dave have still not managed to eat.
Thank you, Helen. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and Helen Scales. We're into the last few minutes of the programme. We have a question for Tara. Um, this has come from Alan, who's listening on REMFM. Hello to everyone at REMFM. Uh, and he says, what about this new super internet system called the grid that's been developed to handle the level and volume of data that's coming out of the LHC? What's this all about, Tara? So the, the grid is like the next step up from the World Wide Web, if you like. So just as anybody with a computer and an internet access and a browser can share information on the web, so particle physicists can plug all their computers together if they have an internet access and some special software that makes them all work together and come up with a, a distributed supercomputer that not only shares information but also the computing power of all the computers they have together. And if you consider how big our experiments are, about 2,000 people from 80 countries, sort of typically in the case of Atlas, if all these institutions share their computers, then they effectively make a, a supercomputer which is powerful enough to analyse the huge amounts of data that we need to analyse for the LHC to make our discoveries. Thank you, Tara. We've got a question here from Reg Pakari in South Africa, and he wants to know, Ben, what's the reason for the spherical nature of subatomic particles and atomic particles and planets and stars? Why is everything round? <laughs> well, everything isn't round. I mean, uh, admittedly, planets and stars and things are. Um, and, uh, that's, and, you know, uh, a bubble of, uh, of soap that you blow um, is as well. And that's essentially because tension pulls everything in and tends to make it spherical. But if you're talking about fundamental particles, they're not. I mean, when you see representations in a, in a textbook, you know, you'll have a little round ball. Um, but that's not what they're like. They're actually really weird. They um, travel as if they're a wave. They get absorbed as if, um, as if they're a, a, a dot. Um, it's not really like um, a sphere. And, uh, you know, you're talking about what's happi happening on very small distance scales with quantum physics. But there was a paper in Nature recently, Ben, mm -hmm. where, where scientists were able to visualise hydrogen atoms with a stream of electrons and they were round balls. Um, well, hydrogen atom, yeah, so hydrogen atom isn't fundamental. So it's made of um, a core and something orbiting around the edge. So it's a bit like a solar system. But actually, you should, so, you know, and that, that does go in a circle because there's a, there's a force and it reaches an equilibrium. And just like the Earth goes around the sun, um, then, you know, it's the same kind of picture. So how, what about the tiny bits inside there? How do you know what shape they are, just briefly? Um, you don't. They're, they're dots, they're weird, they're fuzzy, and they're quantum. <laughs> I'm glad you're just as confused. Thank you very much, Ben Alanak. Right, well, that's it for this week. Thank you, for everyone at home, for joining in with the programme. And to our guests, Ben Alanak, Tara Shears and Guy Crockford, who's at CERN. And also to our wonderful production team, Tom Simpkins, Ben Valsler, Mira Senthalingham, Diana O'Carroll and Sarah Costa-Perry. Next week, we're taking all your science questions because it's our science phone-in extravaganza. So send them in, chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientists are sponsored by the Wellcome Trust, the EPSRC and UK Fast. For more information... Look us up online at nakedscientists.com.